Philippians chapter 4. I'll begin reading in verse 1 and read through verse 14, 13. Philippians 4, 1. Therefore, my brethren, dearly beloved and longed for, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. I beseech Odeus and beseech Syntyche that they be of the same mind in the Lord. And I entreat thee also, true yoke fellow, help those women which labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and with my fellow laborers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Let your moderation be known unto all men, the Lord is at hand. Be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue and if there be any praise, think on these things. Those things which ye have both learned and received and heard and seen in me do, and the God of peace shall be with you. But I rejoice in the Lord greatly, that now at the last your care of me hath flourished again, wherein ye were also careful, but ye lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ, which strengthened me. You may be seated. And Abram said unto Lot, Let there be no strife, I pray thee, between me and thee, and between my herdmen and thy herdmen, for we be brethren. If you should find the perfect church without one fault or smear, for goodness sakes, don't join that church, you'd spoil the atmosphere. If you should find the perfect church where all anxieties cease, then pass it by, lest joining it, you'd mar the masterpiece. If you should find the perfect church, then don't you ever dare to tread upon such holy ground, you'd be a misfit there. But since no perfect church exists made of imperfect men, then let's cease looking for that church and love the church we're in. Of course it's not a perfect church, that's simple to discern, but you and I and all of us could cause the tide to turn. What fools we are to flee our post in that unfruitful search to find at last where problems loom, God proudly builds his church. So, so let's keep working in our church until the resurrection and then we each will join that church without an imperfection. The church at Corinth was one of those churches that wasn't perfect. A little bit like our church in that way, in that it wasn't perfect. So Paul was writing to this church in the book of Philippians, those four chapters. And he had a two-fold reason for writing. The first, I'm, I'm thinking of two reasons. The first one was that he was so grateful for them. Look at verse 1. 
and other verses in the book that or Paul is just lavish in his praise and thanksgiving and gratitude for the church at Philippi. So the first reason, the one reason that he had for writing was simply to thank them. It was a thankful explanation. He thanked them for the finances that they gave them. Look in verse 16 of chapter 4. He thanked them for their faith. Verse 1 of chapter 4 where Glenn just read. He thanked them for their friendship. He was so grateful for their walk with the Lord. The second reason that I'm noticing that Paul wrote the book to the Philippians was that he needed to exhort them about a problem or two that they had in their church. So first, he was thanking them. Secondly, he was exhorting them um, and wanting to address a problem. It was actually kind of a sticky problem because, and we notice again that the church at Philippi wasn't a perfect church. The thing about the problem, the thing about the issue that was at hand in the church at Philippi was that not that it was a theological or a doctrinal problem or issue. It wasn't that people had wrong ideas or beliefs about scripture. When Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, that was the case. They had all kinds of theological issues that they needed to work through in Corinth. When Paul wrote the book to the Galatians, that was the issue. He needed to correct some error in doctrine and in theology. Again, in the books that he wrote to the church at Thessalonica. But that was not the issue here in Philippi. It wasn't a doctrinal error. It wasn't a wrong belief, but it was a behavior problem. It wasn't, didn't have to do with creed, but it had to do with conduct. And so let's look at especially two verses, one verse, maybe a couple verses in Philippians 4, and just think about that a little bit. Philippians 4 is kind of a favorite chapter of mine. There are so many wonderful verses. There are so many tremendous concepts and truth given by the Holy Spirit in Philippians 4. And so we could look at verse 5 or 6 or 7 or 8. We could look at verses 11 and 12, which talk about contentment. We could look at verses 13 and 19. But, I, but let's instead of looking at those, look at verses 2 and 3. Especially verse 2. We always appreciate, don't we, when there is a concern. We always appreciate when there's a concern expressed, when there's an issue, when there's a problem, and someone tells us about that. We, it's always great when there's also a possible solution suggested. In fact, that, that thought makes me think of Theodore Roosevelt, 26th president of the United States, who died just a hundred years ago and a couple months. Remember what he said? And I quote him. Complaining about a problem without posing a solution is called whining. So we, we always like, it's so constructive and redemptive when there's a problem, when there's also possible solutions given. 
Paul did a little better than that yet. He did one better. He first gave the answer before bringing up the problem. If we would go back to Philippians 1.9, notice that he says there, And this I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment. Talking about love. In verse 27, still in chapter 1, only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. And then he talks about standing together in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Look at chapter 2, verse 14. Do all things without murmurings and disputings. In all of that, he was hinting about the issue and giving godly and right and biblical answers In chapter 4, verse 2, we're 82 verses in to the book of Philippians, and finally, Paul names the problem. The problem, and I would also say that he did so very lovingly, very tactfully, very carefully. Do you see it there in verse 2? Very lovingly, very carefully, very tactfully. The problem, well, there was two problems, and the problems were two ladies. I beseech you, Odious, and beseech Syntyche, that they be of the same mind in the Lord. Two ladies, we don't know more about them. We kind of wish we would know more about them, don't we? But they were leading ladies in the church. Look at verse 3. They were active, I think influential. Uh, verse 3 would certainly give that indication. They were well-known ladies. They were probably quite able and earnest and energetic and serious about serving the Lord. And I like to think that they might have been friends with Lydia. Don't know that, of course. But remember Ten years earlier, when Paul had first come to Thessalonica, um, to Philippi, spoke, the Bible talks about that in Acts 16, Paul went to the riverside on a Sabbath morning and found a lot of ladies, a group of ladies there, and the Bible goes on to talk about Lydia, one of them. But I like to think that maybe Euodius and Syntyche were at that meeting, and also were saved in that context. Euodius means a prosperous journey, and Syntyche means a pleasant acquaintance. Now, what was their problem in that they couldn't get along? Could it have been that, could it have been that they were jealous of each other or envious? What's the problem of jealousy? Could it have been that Paul maybe had complimented one of them about, well, about how she did so well in her Bible school class? Or maybe about her cooking? Or maybe one of these ladies had been elected to an office that the other one thought that she would have liked to have? Or maybe the one other people went to her for answers and maybe she had expertise in an area that the other one uh, 
was envious about. Or it could have been any of a number of other things. Was the problem jealousy? Maybe it was. Maybe it was because one husband was more prominent than the other. Or maybe the one had children that behaved better than the other. And so in that, in the midst of a situation like that, maybe soon there was snide or sarcastic remarks and the second one retorted back to the first one and soon there was quarreling and maybe soon the spouses got drawn in if indeed they were married we really don't know were they old were they young were they single were they married and soon they could have well had their set of sympathizers on each side and soon the church was suffering and Satan was smiling we, we know how that is isn't it um, that wasn't only a first generation a first century phenomenon but that kind of thing has happened a time or two since that in church settings. I remember how that you pray, I heard you praying not too long ago when you said, stamp deeply thy likeness where Satan's hath been, expel with thy brightness my darkness and sin. Maybe the problem was jealousy. Maybe one was envious of the other, and the other had reacted defensively and felt real threatened. I'm thinking of a couple of verses in the Old Testament, in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 14.30 says, A sound heart is the life of the flesh, but envy the rottenness of the bones. Envy the rottenness of the bones. And some commentators and I think even modern versions talk about that being the cancer of the bones. Rottenness of the bones. Sounds like bone cancer, doesn't it? That cancer that is within and works its way out and the end thereof is death too many times. We know about cancer. Envy, the rottenness of the bones. We know how cancer works and how devastating and deadly it is. Wanda lost her sister to cancer uh, less than two years ago. I lost my sister to cancer less than three years ago. Cancer. Envy, the rottenness of the bones. Envy is spiritual cancer and it way too often ends in death. Envy. Proverbs 24, 7-4 Wrath is cruel and anger is outrageous but who is able to stand before envy? What more should be said? What more needs to be said? Wrath is cruel and anger is outrageous, but who is able to stand before envy? What is worse than wrath? What is worse than anger? Well, the Bible is pretty clear. Envy is. I think of a lady named Pauline Enlow. 
Paula Enloe, and she says this in the, as we're thinking about envy. If I can get it here on my little machine. She says, I, I experienced the cruel grip of jealousy in my own life. I remember exactly where I was standing the day my pastor asked if I would consider being a secretary for the church. It was such an honor to be asked. I also remember the day it ended. I walked into the church office to put away the offering on a Sunday morning and someone else was sitting at my desk unfolding the dollar bills from the offering plate. I still recall the sadness, anger, and despair that consumed me for it meant only one thing. I had been replaced. I could not get past the hurt. It consumed me until I became jealous and bitter. Jealousy can cause more damage to a relationship than anything I have ever experienced. I began spending less time in prayer and more time talking to others. That's when we get in trouble with God. Have you ever seen a dog that has been hurt? Even the most gentle of dogs will growl and even try to bite its owner if it tries to touch. I was injured so deeply that the slightest reference to it caused pain. Instead of allowing God to heal me, I developed such a rotten attitude that all of heaven could smell the stench. All the hurt, disappointment, and bitterness that I had inside came surfacing to the top like a pot boiling over on a stove top. I found fault in everything at the church, poisonous venom spewing out of my mouth and so on. Jealousy and envy will make your life hell on earth. Jealousy hurts people around us, especially those we say we love the most. During the time I was unkind to some of the... During this time, I was unkind to some of the sweetest, kindest persons I know. And she goes on and talks about how that prayer was something that helped was a major factor in helping her lift out, lift her out of this dread disease of envy, that dread cancer of envy, prayer. And I appreciated the emphasis that you, Caleb, gave on that in your topic. So maybe we should thinking about envy just a little bit more, maybe we should test ourselves for envy. You test yourself and I test myself. Is it, um, testing for jealousy. Is there anybody in church that can do something better than you can do that you detest? Well, that's... We don't detest people here in church, do we? Let, let's say that a little bit differently. Is there anybody here in church that can do something better than you, than you that you dislike a little bit? If there is someone like that, I, perhaps you are struggling with jealousy. So that was the test for jealousy, just a short little one. 
And let's go quickly to curing jealousy. Can it be cured? Can jealousy and envy in your heart be cured? Is it a curable disease? Too often, cancer of the bones, like the Bible talks about, can't be cured or isn't cured. Thank God that it sometimes is. But spiritual cancer of jealousy and envy, yes, it can be cured. Thank God for that. Thank God for that. Someone has said that there's a short two-fold remedy for curing cancer. And the first one is contentment. It makes us think about Philippians 4.11, doesn't it? Where Paul says, Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. A twofold remedy for envy, one point is that of contentment, which simply means, contentment simply means being satisfied in God's goodness to me. When I am content, I am satisfied that God is good. I'm satisfied in God's goodness to me. And then the second prong of that remedy is, the suggestion is that it's love. Loving other people. Praying for those that we are envious of and loving them. Love is truly rejoicing in God's goodness to others. Contentment, being Satisfied in God's goodness to me, myself, and love, being truly rejoicing in God's goodness to others. Isn't it beautiful that you can do something, lots of things better than I? Contentment and love. We could talk a lot more about that. Someone else has said that in the cure, there is a cure for envy and the first step this person says is acknowledging that you are envious acknowledging that I'm envious if I'm envious I cannot be cured until I acknowledge to God and to myself and maybe to you too but at least to God and to myself that I'm envious that's a hard first step oftentimes is it not? Name envy for what it is. Blow away the cover-up, like the, the person says. Uh, point number two is confess it as sin. Number one, acknowledge it. Number two, confess it and accept God's forgiveness for it. First John 1, 8 and 9. Uh, the th third step is accept yourself as you are with gratitude. That sounds like contentment. That sounds like being satisfied in God's goodness to you, doesn't it? Step number four could be the, to learn the joy of giving to others. We're thinking about the cures for jealousy and envy. Is learning the joy of giving to others. Someone has said, I like the little thought, never repress a generous impulse and we say that in our family at home sometimes when we think, um, if I think about doing something nice and I could ask Wanda, is that something I should do? Never repress a generous impulse. Fifthly, set your mind on heavenly things. 
As we deliberately turn away from the old and embrace the new, we are not going to keep looking over our shoulder to see who's catching up with us. Instead, we'll follow the Spirit's leading for our own lives and choose to be grateful for everything God does for us. Envy. Jealousy. Maybe these ladies were jealous. Can you imagine sitting in a church assembly, maybe something like this, and being at the church in Philippi that Sunday, it's the first Sunday after Epaphroditus has returned from Rome, and Paul had taken the opportunity to send the letter back from Rome where he was imprisoned, back to Philippi by way of a brother named Epaphroditus who apparently was a native of Philippi. And so imagine with me that he's invited in the church service to unseal this letter and read it. And so he starts reading at Philippians 1.1 and reads down through. And as he reads, there's a couple hints of what Paul has written. There's hints that Paul knows what's going on. And it just could be that these two ladies are scowling inwardly, probably not outwardly, but inwardly. And then, as John Phillips says, like a flash of lightning and a thunderclap, the squabbling pair were named bluntly, inescapably, and shockingly. Can you imagine what kind of a, how that would make one feel, or the tension that could settle over the congregation because they probably know about it too. How did they feel? How would those ladies felt? I remember years ago there was a little issue in church here one Sunday and I was just a young boy sitting here but I remember that there was a couple ministers sitting here and when there was a little bit of an issue, the one minister got really white and the other one got really red. Maybe something like that happened there. But in the midst of all that, remember how kind, how direct Paul was, but how kind and careful that he was as well. What makes me think that he was kind and careful? Well, the second word there in verse 2, I beseech... What does beseech mean? Uh, Modern translations would say, I exhort, or I urge, or I entreat, or the idea of pleading. I plead, and he uses that twice. I beseech Euodius, and beseech Syntyche. Careful, and kind, and tactful. Beseech, I like that word. And then he talks about being in the same mind in the Lord. The word being isn't there, Caleb, but I like that idea. Being of the same mind in the Lord. How, what is that? Being of the same mind in the Lord. Paul is enjoining them, those two, and he's enjoining us today to be of the same mind in the Lord. What is that and how is that done? The same mind in the Lord. The same mind in the Lord. We don't always have the same mind about things, do we? Um, We have different ideas about lots of things in life, like work habits and recreation and diet and politics and 
preachers and biblical interpretation and all kinds of things. So I have had various conflicts over the years with different people and as I think of interpretation of scripture and how different people think of that I had a father-in-law for years who I greatly loved and admired and we were on different ends of the spectrum when it came to biblical interpretation especially about the study of prophecy and end things and last things and I think he probably loved me and accepted me even better than I did him. I, I think maybe that we were of the, in the same mind in the Lord even if we were of different minds on that issue. We can't all have the same mind in everything. We probably shouldn't have. The Lord created us with a mind to think and we process things differently, you differently than I, and maybe the third person differently yet. We think differently. He's also blessed you and me with a certain heredity and a certain environment, and all of that makes for thinking differently. There's diversity of thought in just about every issue of life. Isn't that right? Or am I the only person that thinks that kind of thing? But we can still be of one mind in the Lord. There are essentials in the Christian life that God requires. The same mind in the Lord. And I think it's right to say the same mind in the Lord. I think it's helped me here if I'm wrong. You can talk to me afterward. But I think maybe the same, having the same mind of, in the Lord doesn't include how we think as much as how it comes out. What we think, not so much what we think or the differences that we have, but how it comes out. And maybe, we can, maybe I can test myself and maybe you can test yourself about how, how your same mind in the Lord factor is by how you act or react, how I act or react when someone has a different will or a different preference or a different plan or different wishes or even a different conviction than I have. When that happens, not if that happens, but when that happens, how am I? Am I willing to adapt? Am I willing to flex a little bit? Am I willing to submit to the will of others? Or am I more apt to fuss and fume and not give up and insist on my way? Being of one mind in the Lord would be the kind of person who is easily entreated and willing to bow to the preferences of others. One of the church fathers long time ago said, and we could probably take a little time to critique this sentence and to notice that it's not quite always right. But for the purposes here today, as we think about being of one mind in the Lord, let's just think about that. Um, the quote goes like this, in essentials, unity. 
in non-essentials, diversity, in all things, charity. In essentials, unity, in non-essentials, diversity, in all things, charity. Okay, so as we looked at Philippians 4.2, I was kind of extra hard on you ladies, and maybe I did that kind of to get your attention. But I do want to say real quickly and emphatically and loudly that I praise the Lord for godly, submissive, humble women of which there are so many here in church. Thank, I thank God for your contribution in the church which is so valuable and so vital. I don't think that ladies have more problems with uh, lack of harmony or jealousy or envy or or anger or bitterness. I don't feel that way at all. I hope I didn't come across that way. I am so grateful for the ladies in our church for the sacrifices that you make and the service that you do to the Lord and your sympathy, all of that and much more. God bless you, every woman in our church here today. Thinking a little bit now about verse, just a little bit about verse 3 of, of Philippians 4. And I entreat thee also, true yoke fellow, help those women which labored with me in the gospel. Help those ladies. They need help. That's often the case in our imperfect churches today, that people need help in relationships. There's lack of harmony between two of them. People need help. Not just women, but men as well. Maybe mostly men. And interesting that Paul uses a similar word, I entreat thee also, a lot like beseech in the verse before. Entreat means to comfort or exhort or to invite or to plead. And Paul is saying, help them. They have been such a great help. Notice that? Help those women which labored with me in the gospel. They have done so much. They have experienced so much of the grace of God. They have contributed so much to the gospel of God. But they need help. We often cannot resolve our problems by ourselves. We need God, certainly we do. Without him, we're nothing. And we often need God's help, God's people as well. It could be our friends. It could be trained counselors. Uh, there is help. Help the helpers. The, Paul's plea here is, for those two ladies especially, but it comes ringing down to us today, that God's helpers often need help. We need to do that with love and compassion. And I'm reminded of verses like James 5:19, "Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which That's Galatians 6. If a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. And James 5.19, Brethren, if any of you do err from the truth and one convert him, let him know that he which converteth a sinner from the error of his ways shall save a soul from death and shall hide a multitude of sins. 
We, as God's people, even in the midst of our needing help, have been called to be helpers. I can help you perhaps in this area while you help me in another area. That's part of fellowship. That's part of discipleship under the mighty hand of God. Helping the helpers. I remember two, twice, two incidents very early in my calling as a pastor where, well, let me just tell you about Loni and Esther's mom, Miriam Miller. And some of us who are older remember her and remember her quiet and gentle ways. And so she was getting weaker and weaker and she was dying. And we went to visit her the day, turned out it was the day before she died. So we were trying to help, right? We went to visit and she was so weak that she could hardly talk. But we, in the course of our being there, we said that we were praying for her and she went like this. And we didn't quite understand, but her husband, Jake, said, she's saying that she's praying for you. Here was a dying lady who was helping the helpers. Another time, we were at Millwood Church for some event, some, I don't remember what the function was, and we went down into the basement to eat, and here comes two ladies and sit across from us, from Wanda and I, and it was obvious that the one lady wasn't very sparky. She was kind of shuffling along, I think, and it became real clear that she can hardly see, and it looked like she really, not only couldn't she see, but she probably could barely count to three either, for that matter. That's what her appearance would have lent us to believe. In the course of conversation, the second lady, the lady, the more able lady, the lady that was beside her, well, in the course of conversation, the, the, the lady that needed help asked if I'm a pastor. Which surprised me, I guess. And then the second lady said, well, you're really going to be prayed for now. Because she does a lot of that. She is a real prayer warrior. And I was just struck again how that me and my first impressions are so often wrong and incorrect. And I looked at her as a frail old lady with nothing to give. And it turned out that she was the giant among us. Helping the helpers. Thank God that we can help each other all under the mighty hand of God. In closing... I'll read a poem, and then let's kneel together for prayer. I think that I shall never see a church that's all it ought to be, a church whose members never stray beyond the straight and narrow way, a church that has no empty pews, whose pastor never has the blues, a church whose deacons always deek, and none is proud and all are meek, where gossips never peddle lies or make complaints or criticize, where all are always sweet and kind, and all to others' faults are blind.
Such perfect churches there may be, but none of them are known to me. But still, we'll work and pray and plan to make our best, to make our own the best we can. All under the mighty hand of God who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Thank God for that.